Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Cold, empty bed, springs hard as lead. Feel like old Ned, wish I was dead. All through my life, I've been so black and blue. Never have I heard the song sung in such a way that it had so much meaning. Uh, and that that's because of this documentary film called Louis Armstrong, Black and Blues. Beautiful documentary film about him and his life and his influence and who he was as a person, as an artist. We're so uh, fortunate to have with us today the director, and that will be Sasha Jenkins. Sasha, welcome to Film School Radio. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Why a documentary about Louis Armstrong now, and how did you get involved in this particular project? Well, the friendly people over at Imagine Entertainment reached out to me with the opportunity. I didn't know that much about Armstrong. I grew up in Queens, New York. I knew there was a school named after him. I knew he lived in New York. He lived in Queens, which was great as a Queens resident myself. But I didn't really know that much about him. And, you know, I grew up a fan of hip hop. And so when I was coming up, Public Enemy was a thing and sort of Black consciousness and identity was a thing. And I was trying to figure out who I was. And Armstrong, based on what people told me, not based on what I knew, was someone who wasn't savory, was someone who was a sellout or, you know, a, a minstrel or you know, this is what how it was sold to me. And it was easy to sort of connect that with images of his eyes bugging out or him making certain facial expressions. So when I did the research as an adult, when I had the opportunity to make this film, I was completely blown away by who the man really was. There's just hasn't been anyone like him since. I mean, I don't know who you can name in the modern era or in any era who can play his instrument sing, funny, naturally just funny, great writer. I mean, I just don't know any a fine artist making beautiful collages. I mean, who can do all of that? I mean, that's the dream to be able to be that talented, to have that many disciplines and and pull it off in a way that's so unique to who you are. I mean, so when I learned that, I, I realized that he's the coolest person you'll ever meet and you'll never meet him. I mean, you'll meet him through his music and his personality looms and super strong even to this day, but I can't name anyone who has what he had. I agree with you. Um, and I some of those things, many of the things that you said as your perception of him before you got started on this project were things that came out of the era when I knew of him. I I wouldn't say I grew up with him, but certainly he was in my in my frame of reference for jazz musicians and artists in general from as far back as I can remember. And it was a, his, that section of his life that I'm most familiar with him was in, in some ways the height of the civil rights movement. And given the context of the, the movement at that time and the people who were leading the movement, he seemed a bit of a relic from another time. And that's how I remember. I'm so glad it's addressed in the film. And, uh, or at least his sensibility came out of another time, a, bit, a better way to put it. So for me, that's, you know, there's so many things about the film to recommend. 
to get to know him personally, to get to know him as an artist, his influence on jazz. I want to talk about that. But the residue of what he died in 1971. So that's the last thing that I knew of of him was he was considered kind of on the outs in terms of the perception of him. This is not a huge part of the film, but certainly an important part of the film. You mentioned this at the beginning of, you know, as you were getting into this project. How, how important was it for you in terms of the presentation of the film to, to essentially put him in the proper frame, the proper frame of reference? I, it was super important because I feel like he's been misrepresented for so long, misunderstood yeah. for so long, discounted for so long. And again, in my younger days, I had this perception of him as being this sellout guy who's willing to sing and dance for white people at the drop of a hat, but that's not who he was. Who he was couldn't have been more opposite of that. And his character and his gumption, his resolve to get it done. I can't name anyone in general who has that kind of personality. You got to figure he was not very far removed from slavery. So it's easy for people of a different generation, including Ossie Davis, who in the film admits that he felt one way about Armstrong and then had an experience and felt another way. But if you're not born in like 1900 in the South, like you don't understand what it's like to be a black man and make it. Nobody does that. Nobody does that, but Louis Armstrong did. You have to look at where he came from, the era that he came from, and what he overcame to become who he became. Absolutely. And his influence on music in general. I love the uh, clip you use of Orson Welles introducing him um, and talking about his influence on music, but the profound influence he had on jazz. Without Louis Armstrong, I'm not sure we would have jazz. Is that a is that, if I'm being fair, I, that's what that's what Orson Welles says. Yeah. yeah, I think he made it popular. He he synergized it in a way that no one had before him, and he learned what he learned on the streets of New Orleans. Yeah. You know, and just like hip hop and other forms of music that comes from the black community, a lot of it comes from the street. You know, and so that's what makes his story super contemporary. I've been saying I did a film about Rick James, I did a film about RZA, I did a film about Wu-Tang, and those three men have the same story. The inner city, Louis Armstrong catches a gun charge, RZA caught a gun charge and almost went away for murder. There would have been no Wu-Tang if he would have gone away to prison. And Armstrong went away and came out, I don't want to say reformed, but he picked some things up and turned his life around, which... I don't know that they're really trying to reform people. I don't know if prison, if the intention here in America is to really reform people. But if anyone was reformed, it was Armstrong. What he went on to do is just unprecedented. The film explores his roots in music and how he became a band leader, how he be- how he developed his style of singing. As you mentioned, that he was just, it was a trumpeter, but he was also this fabulously gifted singer. And he was funny. He was a true entertainer. And he was very dedicated to his craft. Let's talk about his musical influences, the sort of the, where he got his start. Right. Well, he picked up some things in the Waves home where he was given the opportunity to 
based on what he had learned to lead the band. As he says, there's guys like King Oliver who yeah. took a shine to him and took him under his wing. That's super important. That faith, that sort of adult saying, you're a special, come with me. I mean, he doesn't really have, a, he has a dad, but like, you know, to have a bit of a father figure was a, a powerful thing for him. And, you know, I also credit being a kid on the streets of New Orleans. You know, he talked about singing for coins or, you know, finding ways to create instrumentation from what might be on the street. I think that sort of ability to improvise coming off of being a street kid in New Orleans also had a heavy hand in formulating his uh, musical prowess. King, you mentioned King Oliver. You mentioned his ascendancy within the band and how how fundamental that was. Also, his marriage uh, was a key part in him moving on in, in his career. I think that was a great part of the story, his relationship with his wife, Lil. Yeah, I mean, Lil... I mean, it shows you how progressive he was. He's he's listening, he's crediting and listening to a woman, right? Well, how novel is that? But she really pushed him to be the, the best that he could be and said, I don't want you to play second fiddle. I want you to be the big kahuna. And he, in his lo- loyalty to Joe, Mr. Joe, as he called him, <laughs> he's like, no, I'm going to play my position. And she's like, well, if you want to be in position with me, you're going to have to step out and step up. And he did, you know, he could have been a side man for how much longer, who knows, but he really listened to the world. He listened to his surroundings. He took advice from all kinds of people and made some pretty sound decisions. He developed this ability to be able to take the blatant racism that he was subjected to and was able to see, I, I guess, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but see a uh, a, a, he had a greater goal. He didn't let he he didn't allow it to to take him down. I call it uh, psychological or emotional jujitsu. He's very tactical in his moves and super advanced for the time. Because as a black man, all the things that America would throw at you, anyone would understand flying off the handle and getting really pissed off, and maybe even doing something rash to either defend yourself or to defend your honor. And he found a way to maintain his honor, keep his head cool and get it done. There's that example of him going back to New Orleans and being introduced. He was going to be introduced by this guy who happened to be white. In the 11th hour, the guy said he can't do it. He can't introduce Armstrong because he's an N-word. He's black. He's not going to do it. So Armstrong just said, okay. And he went out and introduced himself. And when he played his first note, everybody went nuts. So someone might have been completely defeated and deflated by that. Someone might have lunged at the guy who knows? Armstrong took matters into his own hands, took control of the crowd, and did what he does best. I think that's a universal message for anyone who's listening and an inspirational message for anyone who's listening. Two places that were extremely important to him, New Orleans and Chicago, where they became a big part of his story. Before I ask you about those, those two places that he spent a lot of time and the influences they had on him, I also really want to touch on this very important part, which is he was a superb musician. The things he could do with a trumpet were spectacular. And amongst his peers, he was regarded as the best. Is that a fair statement about him? Oh, yeah. I mean, Marsalis, Mr. Marsalis talks about how when he was a kid, 
based on his perception of Armstrong, even want to listen to it, wasn't really into it. And then he said his father urged him to check him out. His father said, why don't you try to play what he plays? And he said, in that moment, when I sat down and really listened to it, I realized that like, this guy's the man, he's on another level. So when you have someone like Marsalis in the modern era, who can contextualize why this guy is the man and talk about his musical innovations. I mean, it's just undeniable. It's easy to sort of, in the modern era where people rely so much on technology to make music, which there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're talking about from scratch, homemade, just you and your instrument kind of music making, uh, Armstrong is unparalleled in terms of how, how tall he was. I'll remind our listeners, we're speaking with Sasha Jenkins. He is the director of the film, Louis Armstrong, Black and Blues. And it is going to be out on Apple TV Plus on October 28th. But just the last minute or so that I have with you, I just also want to talk about the style in which the story is told. You use what you described earlier as one of Louis Armstrong's passions, which was the collage and his ability to create these wonderful images from it. The film is told very much in that style, and it's it's a beautiful thing to watch, how how the film unfolds and how you tell this story. So how, that was that always the, your, your inspiration was, was that, was that? Yeah, I mean, when I learned about his collage work, I was completely floored by it. And, you know, he did this for himself, right? He was making these collages. He wasn't trying to ex- do exhibitions or, show the world, he was doing it for his own enjoyment and his own satisfaction. So it was a real window into who his personality, what brought him joy. So I figured, we figured that if there was a way to sort of bring that to life, it would bring you closer to his personality and what made what what brought him joy and how he saw the world. So Hector Arias, who's who's who works on, I try to get him to work on all my films. Is this a, a brilliant individual, much like Armstrong in many ways, super creative. I don't know where he gets it from, but it, it turned out pretty good, I think. It turned out fantastic. It's a beautiful film to watch. And I really, I love spending time with Louis Armstrong. I love spending time with his in his world and to see it play out so artistically. And uh, great job um, on in terms of the film. And also thank you for, as I said, when we started our conversation, for putting Louis Armstrong where he belongs in in my mind and certainly will for anyone who sees this film. So congratulations, Sasha Jenkins, on that, working with Imagine and your wonderful creative team that you have with you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.